All views and opinions in this podcast are not meant to offend or hurt the sentiments of including but not limited to any person living or dead, religion or ethnic group, community or country. Indian food is so much more than dal, butter chicken or samosa. The average Indian isn't even remotely aware of the tremendous culinary diversity this country has to offer. If the average Indian isn't aware, the world surely hasn't a clue. And on this podcast, we're talking about all sorts of interesting regional Indian cuisines that just don't get the love they deserve. My name is Roxanne Bambot and this is Beyond Butter Chicken. There are very few people who are interesting both on and offline and Dr. Kurush Dalal is one of them. Kurush is a renowned archaeologist, food historian and an extremely popular Parsi caterer. His mother, the late Katie Dalal, has written some fantastic Parsi cookbooks and is considered the foremost authority when it comes to Parsi cuisine and Kurush is continuing her legacy. Honestly, who better than him to take us through the world of Parsi cuisine? I've known Kurush for years, first as a young patron who ate his food at weddings and navjots and then years later when I started my food blog and culinary journey and have listened with rapt attention to his Insta lives and webinars about food history and especially about the community. Welcome to the podcast, Kurush. I'm so excited for this episode. Thank you very, very much, Roxanne. It's an absolute delight and an honor to be here. Oh, and you're very, very kind. <laughs> I think it is. It was so sweet of you to say these really nice things about me. No, I'm a firm believer of being extremely honest. You know, usually people think that, oh, the intros are just waxing lyricals and, and being polite, but it is true. I think you are the best person to do this episode. And that's why I thought you'd be the perfect fit. So let's just jump right into it, right? For someone who's tuning into this episode in whichever part of the world you're living in, who are the Parsis? What is this community and where do they come from? So the Parsis are a very interesting diaspora of Zoroastrian migrants from Iran who came to the Indian mainland after the defeat of the Sasanian emperors and the fall of the Sasanian dynasty. And they basically came to India sometime in the late 8th century. There's a little bit of a quibble about exactly when. Mm-hmm. But by the 8th century AD, they came down, they settled on the coast of India, on the west coast, and they thrived here. India was very, very good to them. I like to call them the original refugees. I don't know if they're original or not, but definitely one of the first because, you know, migrating from one country, actually not even knowing where they're going. You know, this is another mistake that we make, uh, Roxanne. We believe Mm -hmm. that they didn't know where they were going. They just threw themselves in a ship and then got the hell out of there. It doesn't really work like that. Yes, you mentioned this in one of your episodes. I tuned into one of your webinars recently and you mentioned this as well. So, you know... This is a very interesting, uh, really terrible Persian poem uh-huh. written by this gentleman in 1600 AD, recounting the history of the Parsis, which till then was only an oral history. It's a terrible poem as poems go. As a historical document, it's one of the only things we really have to hold on to. He very categorically tells us that they first were people who ran away into the mountains to escape the Islamic invasion in 641, 651 AD. And they stayed there for 100 years till the borderlands were also incorporated into the Arab empire. Mm-hmm. They then made their way down to the city of Hormuz, where they stayed for 30 years, then took ship to India, landed at Dew, spent 19 years on the godforsaken island of Dew before they made a deal and made landfall at Sanjan, which is 
just across the Maharashtra border into Gujarat on the west coast of India. So they couldn't have been doing all this overnight. And we do know that there's an enormous trade going on between the Sasanian Empire and the rest of the Indian Ocean. Mm-hmm. We have some amazing stuff about the Sasanians sending people to Karnataka, uh, to the local rulers over there in a very, very early period. So we know that this was going on. And since this was obviously going on and they knew the routes, they planned to set up shop at a place which they had some inkling of. So, you know, the way we like to create this beautiful story, this is, this is India. India does this to everybody. So I know there's also a very popular story that we love to tell people about a head priest going to a Hindu king and asking for refuge and, you know, allowing us or asking for permission to allow us to stay in India. Do you think there's any uh, merit to that story or is it just a wonderful myth and tale we take great pride in saying? It's a beautifully apocryphal story and it basically is made to drive home a rather important point, again, one that we really miss. So the legend tells us that the local ruler of the Sanjan region was one Jadi Rana or Jadav Rana and that Mr. Jadi Rana, when the leader of the Zoroastrians, who was a warrior priest, a Yahuzdathrigar, went over there and said, you know, we want refuge. And seeing obviously a large number of people, you know, that stayed for all those years at Dew, waiting Correct. to find some place where they would be accepted. Because Dew is no place where you really want to stay. <laughs> and uh, the king was very diplomatic. And the diplomacy comes through in the story. So the king supposedly brings this bowl of milk filled to the top and says, you know, I'd love to help you guys out. You know, I really think you're deserving, blah, blah, blah. But my country is like this bowl of milk. It's full to the top. There's just no space for you guys. Yeah. Trying to, you know, not piss off anybody, but at the same time, in a very nice way, say, sorry guys, it's not happening. Yeah. The story then goes on to tell you how smart the leader of the restaurants is because he reaches into his cassock and pulls out sugar crystals and he crumbles them in his hand and into the milk and he tells the king, we are like this sugar. Not only will we dissolve into the milk, we will enrich it and make it better. We'll sweeten it. Yes. So there is ego. Most definitely. As there always is. Always let's is. be honest. Yeah. And of course, this is our side of the telling of the story. We have really no clue who this Jadirana was because this was a tribal buffer zone between two large empires at this time in the early medieval period. Mm-hmm. So the reason we chose it also makes sense. You know, we would have upset balances on either side in Gujarat or Maharashtra. This tribal buffer zone in the middle was the right place for us to settle down. It was a beautiful creek port. And it became a very, very important site, this place called Sanjan, on what was subsequently, you know, thanks to the Pax Islamica, the massive trade that came out of the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf, really having such a hard time. We really wouldn't have been trading with them immediately after that, would we? So we've established the Parsi cuisine came from Persia, came to India. I mean, what was Persia, modern day Iran, I suppose, came to India and settled down here. So how would you best describe Parsi food? What is the cuisine all about? Parsi cuisine is essentially what we call a diasporic cuisine. And it's something that my wife actually studies academically because she finds it fascinating not being a Parsi. You know, there are a lot of things that we Parsis know but we take them so much for granted about our food that we don't really realize. And that's common to all communities who don't really introspect their own food. True, very true. You would expect that Parsi food would be a robust Persian cuisine. Well, we've had 1200 years of India to hammer down those walls. We've also had the unavailability of a lot of things that 
we had in Iran, but we've also had the massive availability of things that we couldn't have dreamed of in Iran. So traditional Iranian cuisine, even today, is basically bread and meat. And rice. Bread and meat, rice for, it used to be for special occasions. Today it is, of course, more commonly eaten. Lots of pulses Mm -hmm. and dried vegetables, dried fruits, nuts. This is because Persia doesn't really grow much. There's a lot of desert, short growing seasons, so on and so forth. Fish usually comes from the Caspian Sea, the famous white fish of the Caspian Sea, which is delicious, folded in uh, leaves and cooked. And these leaves are usually grape leaves. Mm-hmm. So it's a very, very interesting cuisine. Very you, similar to, I mean, not fish, but very similar to dolma in that sense, where they use much, the grape leaves to wrap. So, you know, leaves to wrap is a big thing. And there were no wine leaves in uh, India, but there were banana leaves. Yes. And then just to make things exciting, we didn't have to just use what we used to have back in Persia. So we had coconuts, we had coriander, which we knew about, but we had so much coriander here. And uh, we made patrani machi. But when you look at dishes like this, you realize it's not just Persia and India. There's so much more. I mean, the vinegar that we use is a legacy of the Portuguese. So many of our dishes are heavily influenced by British cuisine or English cuisine. We have an entire cuisine, which we call continental, that nobody on the continent has a clue about. Oh, yes, that was going to be my next question. We'll we'll come to that in a bit. I find it very, very interesting, this obsession with Conti food. So Parsi food is essentially a very, very Indian diet using Mm -hmm. Indian ingredients, using a lot of Portuguese techniques, using a large number of British techniques, and essentially reminding ourselves of things that are in our collective memory. So the adding of nuts and fruits on our pulaos, celebrating with a pulao and not with, you know, something else. These are all from our Persian roots. These are all from our Persian roots. Cooking sali jardalucha chicken. So the sali comes in much later, but the jardalu and chicken cooked together, again, it's a very Persian thing. Very common to see various fruits being cooked with meat and chicken. And pulaos are usually on the sweeter side back there. Huge number of uh, spices that we got exposed to here, which we didn't have before. And many that we knew, but we uh, kind of couldn't afford back in Persia were suddenly easily available here. Mm-hmm. So cinnamon, cardamom, black cardamom, cassia bark. Saffron, of course, we started reusing much later. But it would have been very difficult to get saffron in Gujarat. And then as we spread up and down the coast, so many different things that we took from Gujarat. So, so many typically Gujarati ways of cooking things. All the dals. Yeah that suddenly became available to the Parsis, stuck with eating chickpeas most of the time in Persia. Suddenly there was masoor, there was masoor dal, there was tuar dal, there was chana dal, there was all kinds of things, black-eyed peas. It was absolutely crazy for us. Nobody eats as much kardhanya as we do. Yeah, that's true. You know, people don't realize it. And I'm often asked if they always say, oh, what do you eat? And nine out of 10 times, the answer is some sort of dal or lentil in in some way. It's just a thing. You know, in any Parsi household, you have jars of dals as backup. Also, the one very interesting factor is that we were highly adaptable. That's one of the things that comes out of being a diaspora and being migrants. Yeah. You're very, very flexible. I still remember, so my mom who was from Bandra told her aunt in Bandra that she was married to this boy from VT, from Fort. Now, Fort was the heart of Bombay mm. at that time to all of these people. My uh, great aunt kind of wrinkled her nose and said, oh, Pela Kotna Lok, those people from Fort, all they eat is omelettes and dal. 
And my mother was aghast at that and asked my dad, is it, is it true that your regular fare is omelets and dal? Yeah. My dad said, you've got to be crazy. Why would you eat omelets and dal together? You eat either omelets or dal. Yeah. My mother wasn't very mollified by that, but it actually points out to an earlier time when being across the creek and no bridge to Bandra, mm-hmm. the island of Mumbai didn't really have a lot of vegetables. Yeah. So vegetables were expensive. Dried dals and beans of different kinds were easy to store and keep, especially in the monsoons and times like that and in times of bad weather. So eating of all of these so-called kathor, as we Parsi call it, Parsi yes. call it yes. kardhanya as the Maharashtrians call it, you know, the pulses as such, was actually something that we did as an adaptation. So those who lived on the other side got lots of vegetables in their diet. Those who lived on this side didn't have as many. So these are very interesting nuances within the Parsi diet. So you mentioned about continental food and baked dishes and things like that. Of course, so many influences from Indian food and, you know, when the Portuguese were here and when the British were here. And uh, of course, if you are familiar with a Parsi or with the community, you know that we have this strange obsession with all things British. And I think that's also translated into food. So could you maybe talk to us a little bit about this crazy obsession with continental food? Okay, so this is kind of history and food coming together. Mm-hmm. We flourished under the British. Yes, we did. That is very true. We fit a niche which was empty in India, a niche of a middleman between the Hindus and the Europeans. Mm-hmm. A lot of Hindus didn't want to deal directly with the Europeans because they felt they would lose caste. Europeans being Christians were very, very skeptical about dealing with Muslims whom they all called Saracens. Okay, and the uh, Muslims very kindly referred to them as crusaders. <laughs> I think that's been yeah. going on for uh, centuries, but yes. Centuries. <laughs> uh, please remember the first crusade actually was started by the Christians. But on that <laughs> happy note, the Parsis fit this beautiful niche of being middlemen, being brokers in between. My surname comes from there, Dalal. It means yeah. broker. They did very, very well for themselves. Very few people know, but about a decent... of the real estate in South Bombay originally was owned by the Parsis. It wasn't that the Parsis occupied it. They owned it. They rented out and rented houses to the Europeans who didn't really want to buy a house. Imagine coming here for three years, buying a house, setting up shop, getting the required servants, finding the furniture. And then before you know it, figuring out how to dispose it off because your tour of duty is over. So the Parsi gentleman said, don't worry. I have some lovely properties to show you. Come and have a cup of choy with me and some bakras and I'll show you some amazing stuff. And my wife can tell your wife about everything that she needs to find out over here and all the people, of course, getting a commission on everything everywhere. But of course. We got along with them. We learned their language. We educated our children. Surprisingly, we started educating our girls reasonably early so that we could all get along with the British. And we figured out that this was where our bread was buttered. Yeah. So, so much of British food crept into Parsi food, you know, even the words that we use, cutlets. Yes. Basically comes from the cutlet. Correct. So our cutlet is a very different thing from the British cutlet, but <laughs> it's along similar lines. Patties. The inspirations from there. Patties. Patties is basically patties. Yes. So P-A-T-T-I-E-S becomes P-A-T-T-I-C. And we kind of look down our noses at the, the English patties as if not really working. Good idea to have something stuffed with carbs on the outside, but we'll put potatoes. You can't have a better dessert than lagannu custard. And lagannu custard is actually a British custard, a typical British custard, mm-hmm. taken to the next level. We decided to bake it instead of steaming it. 
and we reduced the milk even further. Mm -hmm. We went back to our Iranian roots and garnished the hell out of it with dry fruits. And of course, we added nutmeg and cinnamon powder, which are our go-to sweet spices. Yeah. And well, because it's British, we added vanilla to it. <laughs> and the laganu custard was born. It's an incredibly simple dish. All the bakes, uh, you know, the most amazing dish which talks about the synthesis of our food is the sasni machi. Yes. The sasni machi is a, a sweet, sour, spicy fish dish uh, in a white sauce, basically. And this fish dish is the fish of the Gujarat coast. Okay, the pomfret, which the Parsis are crazy about. So we are obsessed with the pomfret. And which is really funny because that happened after we came to Bombay. But that's a story for another day. So there's this beautiful pomfret, uh, which is cooked in something resembling a bechamel sauce. Okay. That's the closest you can get to it. But it's made either out of rice flour or chickpea flour. It's soured using Portuguese vinegar that they brought down. But we converted to cane vinegar instead of, you know, doing the sugar, uh, the, the coconut or the wine vinegar that the Portuguese use. But we figured out yes. this very early. So there's the British pechamel, there's the Portuguese vinegar, there's the Indian fish, there are all the ingredients that are local. And then just because we are of Persian origin, mm -hmm. there is a beautiful fried birista on top of onions and sliced fried garlic as garnish. That is the perfect amalgamation of everything that has influenced the cuisine. I also wanted to point out for those who understand, Sasni Machi doesn't really mean mother-in-law like Sas, as in your in-law. It's just a take on the word sauce. But uh, we Parsis like to twist everything. So sauce became Sas. Um, but a lot of people ask me like, that's like, is it a special recipe? Did somebody's mother-in-law create it? I said, she probably did, but it's not named after her. So, you know, obviously this cuisine is not for the faint-hearted. I mean, you've got eggs, you've got meat, you've got cream. You've, in most places, there will be a generous helping of cheese. I mean, it's almost incomplete without that. I remember someone took his mother-in-law to a Chinese restaurant. Actually, Kalyan, friend, a common friend of ours, uh, he was saying this on one of his podcasts, I think. And he said he took his mother-in-law, who happens to be a Parsi, to a Chinese restaurant. And he said, Mom, how did you like the food at the end of it? And she said, oh, yes, very nice. Not any cheesy dishes. <laughs> I just didn't know what to say. And I laughed. Yes, I, no cheesy dishes. No cheesy dishes. And I laughed because it's such an innocent thing to say. Because in our mind, you know, to, to any uh, Parsi, it's like, the, where's the cheese? You know, it's funny you know, that. And, uh, the, the, where's the cheese is really funny. I can imagine. So, of course, we've talked about Parsi food now, influences, you know, a little bit of the British uh, influence, a little bit of the Portuguese when they were ruling India, of course, uh, everything that we had in Gujarat and things that we remembered from Persia. But what is your earliest memory of eating Parsi food? And how do you think with your mom being a caterer and working with her and helping her, how do you think this has sort of influenced your culinary journey? So this is a, a four-hour long exposition. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll, we'll take the abridged version. My mom didn't become a caterer because she wanted to. It was purely, purely just, you know, the universe conspiring. Mm -hmm. um, and we're so glad it did. Oh, so, so much. So mom came from a very good family of cooks. I tell people, you know, that a good cook can be made. Mm -hmm. A great cook is born. Yes. So she came from one of those crazy families. And uh, was an expert at all things Parsi. 
Then she married my dad, who was a shippy, went out to sea with him on a couple of really long voyages and ate a lot of food all over the world. And this kind of completely opened up doors in her head. You know, today there is so much exposure we can get in a city like Mumbai. Mm -hmm. In those days, it was very, very small. Only very top-end five-star restaurants would give you anything that was not traditionally Indian food. So this completely changed the way she looked at food. And she loved what, again, we call continental food. And uh, whenever my dad was here, there'd be parties. And a lot of these were, you know, uh, potluck kind of parties in very early days. And mom would always go out on a limb to put something together and take. And as a kid, I still remember, you know, the, the backseat of the car neatly being piled up with these large trays of salads and things like that decorated oh, and nothing. wedged in with extra rolls of cloth so that everything was kept safely. And I was told not to touch anything because I was sitting in the back. <laughs> so happy memories of that. And then people started saying, you know, Are, let's just ask Katie to do the whole thing. Yeah. So once in a while, there would be this mad rush at home. When my mom got married, we jokingly, uh, you know, we called her my mom's dowry. So there was this young Maharashtrian girl who came to work for my grandmother called Parvati Kadam. And she got married and had kids and learned under my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And then when my mom got married, she was sent with my mother to keep an eye on my mother so that, you know, my mother wouldn't disgrace the family name. <laughs> so Parvati and mom would just raise a storm. One of my earliest memories actually is of, of cooking, mm -hmm. is of making Parsi chai. So oh. my parents, if they were both in Bombay or just my dad, mom, would always have an afternoon snooze after lunch. I and think I, that uh, is true for almost every single Parsi household. And I say this because it happens in mine even today. It's very difficult to work through the afternoon. Parvati would, after clearing up, would then sit and eat her lunch and then sit and make paan for herself. And I'd kind of drive her nuts. These memories must be from around three, three and a half, you know. How lovely. And then she would put up a stool in front of the kitchen range mm -hmm. and uh, teach me how to make tea. And I would make tea at the ripe age of three and a half. Wow. So at 3.30 sharp, the tea was ready. And then she would not let me lift up the teapot, of course, from the range. And then she would put it there. And then I would put the tea cozy on it. Oh, sweet. And then we'd take out the milk and we'd heat the milk. And I would go to knock on my mom's door to tell her that tea was ready. But must and, have been so exciting for oh, a child. I mean, you know, the kitchen is always a place of wonder, especially if you're inclined towards food or cooking and that, you know, most chefs have these kind of memories where they look back and say, you know, pottering around the kitchen was like a magical place. So I can imagine a young Kurush trying to make choy. Uh, my grandmother lived in Bandra. It was a very rustic bungalow house. Mm -hmm. And I keep telling people my great-grandmother when she came down to Bombay, was a poor widow lady and she could only afford a house in Bandra. And today all my students cackle with glee <laughs> at the thought that she was so poor she could only buy a house, rent a house in Bandra. And I'm trying to explain to them that no, at that time Bandra was the boonies. Yeah, it was today, nothing. Bandra is the place. Correct. You know, get yourself a house in Bombay. She had a rather large house, large kitchen. She didn't mind me being underfoot. I was mm. the first grandchild. You get away with a lot. We'd spend all our summer vacations with her. Of course, we'd get upset tummies from eating too much or something like that. But we look forward even to an upset tummy. Yes. And this is one of my vividest memories of her kitchen. If you had a bad stomach, she would make stewed apples. Oh, wow. Two apples with a little bit of cinnamon, sugar and lime juice in a dish on top of a wick stove. So she had a wick stove with a long funnel called a criterion. So mm -hmm. it was this cast iron little stove with had a little box at the bottom into which you poured in your kerosene and a wick and a little door with a glass window. So you open the door and you lit your wick 
and you close the door and then the heat rose up, you put on something to slow cook. So there would be these slow cooked stewed apples, Roxanne. There were enough times when one faked a bad stomach just to get them. <laughs> I'm sure. It sounds so enchanting, up. almost like from a fairy tale, you know. This, and this is as rustic as rustic gets. <laughs> that is the right word to describe that house. But beautiful. We've talked about memories. We've talked about uh, influences with Parsi food. I want to ask you, would you say there are some essential ingredients to making Parsi cuisine? Uh, and I know it's a little bit uh, open-ended because, you know, different people tweak dishes and put their own things. But would you say there are some, like I always like to tell people that the flavor profile for a lot of this is khattu mitthu tikku, so which is a uh, sweet, sour, spicy. But would you say there are any essential ingredients that go into making Parsi food to get this flavor profile? Not just this flavor profile. So, you know, um, the pantry would have to have rice, mm-hmm. dal, many other dals. Most definitely eggs. Oh, yes. Because if there's no other protein, there is eggs. And if there is other protein, why not throw in a few eggs in any case? In the spices, thanks to, uh, you know, the Colombian exchange and all that have taken place in the Portuguese having brought their stuff. A good chili powder is a very essential thing in a Pasi kitchen. And it's usually more color and flavor and less heat. Yes. Kashmiri chili powder is the go-to kitchen spice in many ways. There will also be a good turmeric. There will be what is called dhana jeera. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are two things in a dhanajira. Dhanajira basically means uh, coriander and cumin. So there will be a two is to one ratio of coriander to cumin, mm-hmm. which will be ground seeds basically, which will be ground into a powder. Mm-hmm. It can also be a garam masala, which has dhanajira as a base. Correct. So dhanajira has now become a kind of fluid term. So then it would be what is called a thansat masala. So mm-hmm. this, every family has its own go-to set of spices. Traditionally, the matriarch of the family would have something called a teep. Which a would teep. be a list, a teep, T-E-P, okay. which would be a list of all the ingredients and their specific weights. And uh, you would go once a year and get the masalas, roast them. And then these amazing Kathiwari ladies would come with these wooden khalukhal, as they were called, and would sing outside your doorstep as they pulverized all your year's masalas for you. So dhanajira, chili powder, haldi, a good dhansak masala, which is actually universal and can be used across the board for things. Yes. Okay. Along with that, there is a very interesting spice from Gujarat that the Parsis use called keri sambar. Keri sambar, as in mango sambar. Yeah, which has nothing to do with the sambar of South India. Okay. Okay, Sambar basically means samabhar, means Mm. equal parts, and they don't even have to be equal. It's a very interesting salt, chili, and mustard dal. So it's basically mustard without the outer covering. So mm-hmm. it's polished mustard. So it's the yellow mustard dal, as it's called. Red chilies and salt. You might add a little hing to it. There are variations. This is usually what is used. And uh, this is the great secret that I'm giving away, according to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what takes your dansak to the next level. So yes. you add a spoonful of kari sambar and a spoonful of dansak masala, or two spoonfuls of dansak masala, to your ghee and your tomatoes and your curry patta leaves. And that is basically the tempering for a good dansaka. So this masala is rarely used for other things. There are very few other dishes, but this is always there in a pantry and you will always have sugarcane vinegar. Yes, that's my favorite. Sugarcane vinegar is a very, very big part of Parsi cooking. Most of the Parsis will use a brand called Kolas. Mm-hmm. A very interesting family from Nausari who make it. And they've had various fishers, as all families do. So there are three main families of kolas, each which have two subfamilies. 
So oh, they're wow. known as the two sweet colas, the two spicy colas, and the two sour colas. The two <laughs> sweet colas have ice cream shops in Nausari mm-hmm. and are not known really outside. The spicy colas run masala shops and they're also very local. But it's the sour colas, okay, who basically make the vinegars, the pickles, the chutneys, which are sold all over the world. And Parsis have their own networks, be it in Canada or California. Oh, yes. They get their hands on it. They use some of the best plastic packaging I've ever seen. I have never seen a cola's vinegar bag explode, ever. I mean, you can throw it from the second floor to the ground floor and it won't burst. I know exactly what you mean. I And honestly, I feel bad even promoting plastic because that's really not what we want. We want to be more sustainable. But I have to agree, it is phenomenal. It's only sold in plastic bags. People ask me, where can I buy this bottle? And I have to correct them and say, it's not a bottle. Right, <laughs> it's yeah. a bag. You know, it, we used to buy it at one time in these 30 liter cans, these big 30 liter plastic carboys. Wow. Yeah. And it's a lovely system. In the old days, my mother would drop a postcard. 15 days later, the vinegar would turn up home. And the guy would very nicely say, Madam, when will I come for money? And you could (laughs) tell him two days later, three days later. On that day, the man would come, pick up the money and go. And it was all done by one postcard. It was the most amazing way the Parsis talked upon things. I now make a phone call to Yazad Kola at EF Kola and Sons when I want it, but... Yeah, it's much easier to just drop a call or message. I can't imagine doing anything via postcard, but I suppose that's really how it started. That's the first WhatsApp, so to speak. You know, you mentioned eggs, and it's a great time to bring this up about how the Parsis, and myself included, for anyone who's listening and hasn't picked up by now, I'm both Kurush and I are very proud Parsis. We're just obsessed with eggs. And um, even for me, I'm, I am I eat everything, but uh, my go-to is always, eggs and I love to tell people this I don't discriminate you know fried double fried sunny side up uh, boiled scrambled light scrambled tight scramble I will eat it any which way where do you think this insane love for eggs comes from so it's partly Persian actually in its origin because it was a very very easy to maintain animal you know you had large wooden baskets Mm-hmm. basket like cages in which you kept your chickens you let them run in the yard they basically ate all the kitchen scraps you packed them up in their cages every night and when you let them out in the morning you picked up the eggs that they'd left in it was a very very renewable very low carbon footprint blah blah you know all the right terms today <laughs> very eco-friendly kind of way to generate protein from waste yeah i mean think of it you know i mean i might joke about it but think of it it's actually very very sensible that's true. And my mom would tell me that when she'd visit her great grandmother in Gujarat, which was done religiously every holidays, mm-hmm. my grandmother would take her in tow to visit her great grandmother. Okay. And uh, they would spend about a week or two at Nargol, which is a little further from Sanjan. And uh, next to Nargol was a small village called Soranda, and they had their family farm there. There were about, at any given time, 30 to 60 chickens running around the backyard. What fun! Okay. And uh, the, the good thing was, you know, if there was an emergency, you send the chokra boy outside to run down a couple of chickens <laughs> and you quickly cook them together. But the chickens were a secondary issue. You didn't want to eat too much chicken. You wanted to keep them there. So you got lots and lots of eggs and the entire family could be fed eggs for breakfast and eggs for dinner if necessary. Yeah. And there was always protein on the table. So fish and eggs was the go-to thing. Chicken was eaten as and when. 
or you know there was some chicken who stopped laying and you were like okay now it's your time to become a salija daluma murgi because you've it's done time. your service and now it's time for you <laughs> it's time yeah, for you to carry on to the next level of your uh, spiritual growth also something which would regularly be done when people were traveling mm-hmm. so parsis make this chicken which is made without any water just a uh, ginger garlic paste uh, sometimes a chili paste added to the ginger garlic salt pepper ghee mm-hmm. and you slow roast your chicken in that not a drop of water it's actually the bhatiyani murgi mm-hmm. not yes. what you get later on with the, which is a very rich preparation with the cashew gravy and all that which is great fun but the traditional bhatiyu potlu as it was called which was traveling food was this kind of chicken it would also be cooked with potatoes large pieces of potatoes and ghee but of course fried and placed on top and there would be these rather leathery solid chapatis which would be made and the whole thing would be packed together and given to you so there'd be this dabba full of your chicken and potatoes mm-hmm. and underneath it there would be a chapatis the whole thing would be tied in a pr- probably a nice checkered uh, piece of cloth and it'd be handed to you to eat on the way in the train or in the car or on your journey it's fascinating no traveling food or food when you're going on a journey is this elaborate meal and today we take things like granola bars and sandwiches and little nuts to keep you satiated but the original parsis like to do it in style a whole roast chicken with potatoes so every year we went once a year to udwada on a kind of pilgrimage yeah okay and that udwada is a town about a couple of 100 kilometers to, from mumbai <clears throat> it's the number one passy place of pilgrimage so my grandmother would like to go there and my dad would take out the car and say chalo we all going to go and we all get crammed into this car and all go to udwada my grandmother would cook up a storm the night before there would be little little beautifully perfectly shaped mutton cutlets that would be stacked up and she would make everything ready get up at 4 in the morning and make omelet sandwiches oh yes i was omelet just going to say that for a pow sandwiches were a must and there would be bananas that my grandfather had brought and kept on the side and this would be packed as a light repast just in case we felt faint on our five hour journey you know and there would be a big thermos flask full of choy of course yes so when we'd come from uh, Dicky and pick up my grandmother at Bandra. There'd be an entire basket to load into the dicky, and uh, we drive down. And somewhere, you know, deep inside Maharashtra, on the way on the coast, we'd find a nice grassy spot, park, and have a picnic. I miss that. You know, you have taken me back to my childhood. We would even do this when we did trips. I mean, I grew up in the eighties and early nineties, and at that point. most trips were to lonavla and pune and like you said udwada and everything it's the memory of waking up at 4 in the morning to pack the car and my grandmother making these pora sandwiches or omelet sandwiches and it's the parsi pora right so it's a omelet pora, yes. with onion and and chili and and coriander and adul lasan of course ginger garlic i mean nothing moves without that but just fantastic memories and i suppose like you said we just cannot do without the eggs it's everywhere Everyone's ubiquitous. <laughs> yeah. Nothing else. We take boiled eggs with us. I told you, I don't discriminate. Scrambled, boiled, fried, double fried, it all works. Go to garnish. Boiled eggs, halved and quartered, yes. scattered on chicken, mutton, pulao. Every name. pulao. I tell people, if you don't find the egg, it's not a Parsi preparation. No, it's not a Parsi pulao. It's somebody else's pulao. It's not our pulao because our pulao has nice chunks of fried potato and uh, generous amounts of uh, boiled eggs. If that's not there, then forget. <laughs> and they're always so, looking you know, at me. We had to compromise stuff. when we started packing pulao. 
and we couldn't really put an entire egg into it because it would take up a lot of space and then you'd get less pulao, which wouldn't be right. So my mother would make sure that there was a halved egg on every single individual pulao that was packed. And we regularly had clients who would say, Katie, auntie, can we have two half eggs on the palau? And I'm my mom would just, without batting, you know, today I would think of it and, you know, I know that a request like this would automatically come with, we'll pay for it. Yeah. But back in the good old days, a half boiled egg extra was, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's nice that we've been talking about the pulaus because it's a great segue to an important question I want to ask you. A lot of people, when they come to me and they say, oh, you're Parsi and, you know, you, you have such amazing food. Where can I get berry pulao? Can you make berry pulao for me? And that's become just this dish that everyone sort of gravitates to. And I, you know, of course, it's made from a popular restaurant called Britannia in Mumbai. And that's what popularized the dish. And I tried to look up recipes even just to see. And there's no recipe per se because I wanted to recreate this and you'll get versions of the pulao or pulao or pulao or however you pronounce it with you know sort of Iranian dishes lovely Persian rice with like a massive chunk or hunk of chicken leg or something on it and I'm like but this is not what we get you know with the little kebab balls and a little boiled egg because you know boiled egg has to be there and the potatoes so I find this very interesting could you maybe Talk to us a little bit about Britannia. Yeah, so a lot and the... of people are going to hate me and you for this. So the berry pulao that we get at Britannia these days, uh, mm-hmm. which I think is a bit of a ripoff, personally. Oh yes, I uh, agree. Uh, but, but that's a different story. From, that's a different story. You know, if there are people buying it, then he's right in selling it at that price. Yeah. It isn't the berry pulao that Britannia used to actually make. So my grandfather was a very good friend of Baman Kohinoor's, and uh, when my mum was expecting. We spent quite a few lunches quietly over there when she was not up to cooking. Mm-hmm. And it was just around the corner from our place. Berry pulao was an amazing dish invented by the people of Britannia to get rid of yesterday's cooked mutton. <laughs> so you had, no, no, and everybody knew it. It wasn't like a secret. So you had mutton that was cooked yesterday in its gravy and had sat. So this was shredded and a fried rice was made with this mutton and fried zereshk berries were sprinkled over the top with birista. Mm-hmm. This was the original berry pulao at Britannia and Company. Over the years, and I have no clue why, it became so popular that they started having to make mutton for it. Yes. And now there's a prawn version. Sweet Jesus. Yep, yep, yep. There is a prawn. There's all. I mean, because you have to do Baman, that, right? Thank God Baman is dead. <laughs> he just stabbed himself with a blunt teaspoon before doing this. So... Then it started becoming chunks of mutton. The chunks became boneless. They became bigger. The gravy from a very oniony gravy changed to an onion tomato gravy. And then those three little marble-sized mutton kebabs came up as garnish. I ate the dish with a 20-year hiatus in between, you know, having eaten it and then going back to it. And I was like, you know, this is a fun dish, but this is a far cry from what I grew up eating and what I had in my mind. Yeah. But like I said, it works. Uh, I remember him telling me at one time when Zeresh was almost impossible to get, he actually used currants. He'd fry currants and add them to the top. And uh, he was very honest about it, saying, look, boss, Zeresh comes from Iran. If it's not available, it's not available. I was going to say that it's even today, 
it's very difficult. Like I was trying to find this and you, you have a few suppliers here and then, especially with the lockdown and with the pandemic and all, it's become even worse. So I'm assuming even now he probably puts currents in them. Oh, uh, You know, what they did was they actually had, there was a continuous flow of people coming from Iran, coming and going relatives amongst the Iranian community. So he would have somebody on tap to bring down Zeresh. And it comes in these bricks. They are compressed bricks like a tea brick. You get an entire brick of Zeresh berries wrapped up usually in a plastic paper and it's a beautiful cuboid that comes. Wow. I've actually seen one of them at his place. You actually crumble away from the side and you soak them in warm water, they come back to life and then you fry the buggers and you put them on top of your polo. <laughs> so uh, very fresh ones are red, uh, slightly salted older ones are darker colored. It's a fabulous dish and there's a lot of polo which is made with just Zeresh berries in yes. uh, and you know a little bit of uh, turmeric and a little bit of saffron with the beautiful tadig at the bottom. And I miss the tadig. I don't know I why. Love... Why did we stop doing that in India? I don't know. You tell me. You are the food historian. I want to know, know because maybe, I love a tadig. Rice was not a good a fun thing yeah. uh, to Indians and therefore it was considered a waste of rice. Or, I have no clue what. But uh, that tadig at the bottom, oh God, that's the stuff to kill for. I know, right? So do we classify the berry pulao as a Parsi dish or do we just say that it's a great invention that we've now, it's a recent invention. It's not something that we've been eating since the 8th or 9th century whenever we came. Not this version. Not this version. I wanted to ask you, we have so many popular Parsi dishes. And if, of course, if you did like a Google search, you would get, you know, the basics or the main ones that are highlighted, say, Jardalu chicken or the Sasni Machi, Laganu Custard, things that we've even talked about on this podcast. But I want to ask you, is there any dish that you think the world is really missing out that are your favorites that just don't get the kind of exposure that these popular ones do? Or any, any dishes from the cuisine that you think are worthy of mentioning? Oh, yes. So the first one that comes to mind immediately is Masoor Majib. Masoor Majib, as in like tongue? Yes. So oh, dear. goat tongue cooked in black lentils. Okay. And it's an absolutely amazing dish. Sadly, you don't see it any longer. Nowadays, people have all kinds of issues with offal. And they're like, ooh, mm. tongue. And I'm like, yeah, that's the best cut that you can eat from an animal, you know. Yeah. And you steam the tongue separately. You peel it. You slice it. You introduce it along with its stock to the lentils. And there's this beautiful marriage that takes place. Uh, so that's one thing. The other thing, of course, and we've done our fair share keeping it popular, is the bejana cutlets. Oh my God, Kurush, your bejana cutlets. And okay, so the excitement is because I have ordered his cutlets and I have wrapped them and taken them on a flight to different places. I've taken it to Bahrain, not once, I think twice or thrice. And then my friend who was staying there at the time was just like, he would eat it from my bag. Literally, it was outstanding. And then when he came back, it's so funny. We met you at one of these uh, food pop-ups. I think it was X-Food Festival. And the whole premise of that festival was to do sort of different food. So you were doing like uh, pork something and then you had the bhejana cutlets. And I said, that that's the guy. That's the guy who I get your cutlets from out standing. I, I'm sorry, I interrupted, but just outstanding. Yeah, we've always sold out our Bejara cutlets whenever we've done a pop-up. So for uh, those who don't understand Beja, it means brain. So they are brain cutlets. So we actually did eat a lot of vegetables when we were not in South Bombay, especially all the Parsis of Gujarat. So yeah. there are beautiful vegetarian dishes. 
there are very complex vegetarian dishes there is one vegetarian dish called kakrima gos kakrima gos to uh, meat cook, meat cooked with cucumbers okay But this is not the regular cucumber this is the large marrow that you get in winter you know the really large cucumber which uh, looks like a like a mutant cucumber mm-hmm. which is actually a completely different species so you slice the skin on yeah you scrape out the seed bit you reserve it at the side you take a very very cheap cut of meat like the like the neck okay and you marinate it in uh, ginger garlic and you slow cook it with whole spices till it's braised well and then once it's braised nicely you pile up all these cucumber pieces skin up onto it mm-hmm. put a lid on it with a weight and you forget about it <laughs> on a very low heat so what happens is there is no water the water comes out of the cucumber yeah and then cooks the meat and then the cucumber soaks that meaty juice up all over again so the meat is not the point to eat at the end of it so you make a brown rice like a rice that you make with dansak mm-hmm. and you eat these fleshy fat bits of cucumber which are like jelly and are just barely being held together by the skin and it's one of those amazing dishes i remember my grandmother making it i remember my mom making it i have tried very hard to convince clients to do it but uh, you know the name kind of puts people off yeah i think also we're just set in our ways right when we know and also when people cater to a function there are a lot of non parsees that will attend and you know they want the standard what they know so everyone it's just it's sort of like crowd pleasing i don't i don't think anyone has that machi salim or ghee mutton palav dal and lagan custard menu yeah. is to a caterer so boring standard bread and butter menu and we yeah. do it well we're not denying that but we keep telling our clients to try something else and they all come back to the same thing I'm, i mean i can i can now see my staff doing patrani machi with their eyes closed and one hand tied behind their backs i'm sure <laughs> Okay so you know you mentioned dishes with meat so of course a million dollar question is why are we so obsessed with meat and my question was going to be is there any vegetarian dishes that make up the cuisine and i know we've talked about you know adding the meat to vegetables but so two questions really one is where is this meat obsession come from and two is are there just vegetarian dishes without the meat or the prawns yes. added or even yes. egg for that matter yes so there are a lot of vegetarian dishes the king of all the vegetarianist of vegetarian dishes the parsis eat is something called the lagannu ishtu okay. which is basically the word stew parsiized and lagannu stew means the wedding stew and it's nothing like any stew that you would eat anywhere else to start off with it's a dry dish it consists of cubed uh, root vegetables Mm-hmm. sliced brinjal or uh, sli- sorry sliced okra and uh, boiled green peas and boiled double beets okay which are all done separately so there's carrots uh, sweet potato elephant's foot yam sometimes if you're lucky a purple yam and ube mm-hmm. okay you may or may not put potatoes most people don't i don't like putting potatoes in because there's already so much starch going in yeah and these are all cubed and fried separately and then they're brought together with a masala that uses dates as the base to grind it okay and you add a splash of vinegar so it's kattu mittu very slightly tikku and it's this root vegetable melange which you dress on top with these boiled green peas just plain boiled green peas crunchy fried okra and large i never understood why when I, mean, i tried asking my mom because she said it's it's, it's yum and it is large yeah. butter beans that are boiled with just haldi and salt Okay. So you layer the garnish on top and you serve it. 
and this is the queen of all parsi vegetarian dishes and it's popular you find very, this very, very, on very most menus but even in yeah. regular food there would be enough vegetarian i mean we cook vegetables i think almost very similar to how the gujaratis cook it i suppose that's very the, the influence yeah yeah but it's there so i think people get very put off because they're like but this is like normal sabzi or normal you know food that we eat it's what where is the parsiness to it you and now there is somewhere i was telling you yeah about. yeah it's actually used to make uh, okra mm-hmm. and it's called uh, sambaria bida okay and i have never seen anybody in gujarat make it quite that way but mm-hmm. the parsis do and uh, this is when that masala actually shines we do quite a bit of it for our clients and the clients keep coming back yeah. there's also something called ravaiya which is the parsi version of uh, you know whole brinjals baby brinjals that are cooked yes. stuffed and cooked yes so stuffed and cooked brinjals are all over india it's a very big thing brinjal is essentially an indian vegetable we stuff them with a green chutney and of course add a little bit of vinegar and oil and we actually pressure cook them very slowly Mm-hmm. so the oil the vinegar and the green chutney all make this beautiful brinjal come completely alive and create a very thickish gravy along with it a very little bit of thickish gravy and these are very very popular also we also do very interesting things with uh, broad beans and brinjals and root vegetables so in winter a lot of vegetables were eaten by the parsis traditionally yes. just as vegetables and they would you know if they had to be there would be a cutlass or a patty on the side <laughs> if you just had to have something vegetarian and parsi meals are basically one or two courses yeah. we don't really you know apart from our weddings we don't do elaborate multi course meals and very often there would be something sweet at least once a week if not every day uh, for dessert and uh, there's a beautiful word that is used for parsi dessert so parsis say that they eat dessert to repair the mouth monu oh. samarwa yes yes At the end of the meal your mouth needs to be repaired and brought back and that is why you eat something sweet it doesn't really translate well in english perhaps but i think it's it it has its sweet. own yeah it has its own flavor when it's said in gujarati so again for people who think that this is just only a meat centric cuisine it's not there are a lot of vegetarian options it's just that it's not popularized because i suppose the meat is more glamorous Do yes you- and it wasn't available you know roxan that was the whole thing you today's day and age it's easy to go to a mutton market in a city and buy a small cut of meat yeah you can also go to a cold storage and get it now very very easily but back in the villages if you cut a goat you have to eat an entire goat and you know you know eating one's goat isn't exactly what True. this is about yeah and you couldn't do it unless there was an occasion so you know and there were a lot of families partaking of the same goat so this would happen on important days goat meat was expensive it was celebratory the yes. traditional parsi wedding feast in gujarat featured absolutely zero chicken and zero fish i think chicken so, came much much later in yeah. the 60s Yeah. it was wall to wall mutton you know there would be three main mutton courses or two main mutton courses for sure in every single parsi wedding feast there was something yeah. called khattu gos which mm-hmm. was meat marinated and curd and cooked a very spicy sour preparation mm-hmm. and there would be something called bhaji dana ma gos yes which is uh, four different greens dried peas and mutton cooked together again without any water the water all comes out of the green leafy vegetables and it's cooked with a lot of green chilies it's a very interesting dish again something that's not commonly seen these days we do quite a bit of it and uh, so bhaji dana ma gos khattu gos these would be the two things at a wedding and there would be some kind of a rice and a dal they wouldn't be dessert 
Okay. Beginning, of course, would always have everybody, men, women, children across the board, would get a small tot of flower whiskey, of oh, mauwang, wow. or maudi oh. as we called it. Yes. <laughs> it would come in a kettle. There would be a big kettle, and everybody would be given a fulu, as it was called, which is a flower-shaped uh, uh, little vati. Mm-hmm. And everybody would get a little tot of about 10 ml of this to get your hunger going. How lovely. We should still do that. We should bring back this tradition. I do. <laughs> I'm sure you do. Not commercially. That's what I meant. See, that that's where I was at. You want Mawa, you have to come home, dear. Fair enough. Okay, so there's no right or wrong answer to this question, but I like to ask everyone, what do you think is that one dish that is really the torchbearer of the cuisine? Just something that, you know, you think really encapsulates and says, hey, this is a Parsi dish. To me, it's the Sarsni Machi. You know, Persia, India, British, Portuguese, all in a plate at the same time. Yeah. Uh, the Sarsni Machi is the quintessentially, you know, Parsi cuisine dish. The most popular, sadly, I mean, sadly, I say, even though I like it very much, is of course the Dansat. Yes. Followed by the Patrani Machi and the Laganu custard. All great dishes. But I really wish that people would explore more of Parsi cuisine than just these. I know, right? I was talking to another caterer and um, she mentioned and she said, it's so funny. We look at it depending on the guest list. If there are more non-Parsis at the event, like say your guests have more non-Parsis, there will always be Patrani Machi because that's what they know. But if the guest list has more Parsis, then there will be hell to pay if there is no sas on the dish, on the menu. Again, it just goes back to the whole thing that, you know, you just, the people just know the popular dishes, but no one wants to go beyond. And I really, really wish that they would. You know, there's a very lovely gosno sauce also. Oh, I didn't know that. The sauce, slightly different, small mm-hmm. modifications, is cooked with mutton. So the mutton is, of course, cooked separately. And then the stock is in which you make the sauce and then you bring the two together. But uh, it's very, very interesting dish. And you use you usually use dried red chilies instead of green chilies in the Jirula Sanmarcho. Okay, interesting. And it's a beautiful dish by itself. I think Bhikkhu Maniksha's book actually has a recipe for what she calls lal sauce. Yeah, I will check this out. This this is quite interesting, the ghost sauce. Didn't think that was something. Works very well with prawns also. Again, a slight tweak. Oh, yes. that's But that's become popular now to do yes, pro- sasni prawns. Yeah, I think it's time we started tweaking dishes and being a little more inclusive, even with the vegetarian fare. I know a lot of people turn their nose up when they think of a veg tansak and, uh, you know, Parsis, we can be quite obnoxious. And I'm one, so I can say this, it's fine. I'm not offending anyone. But we really can when it comes to food. You know, I have so many people who say, oh, tansak has to have mutton. What is this veg nonsense? It doesn't exist and all. And I'm like, but it can, in theory, technically, it can. If you just look at what is a dhansak, it is caramelized rice served with a mix of pulses and vegetables. And then the meat together. together. And the meat is then added in. So if I just take out the meat, the entire dhansak is very much vegetarian. So what is the problem with that? My mom and my grandmom would both regularly make a vegetarian dhansak, yeah. especially during Baman Maina. Yes. Which, by the way, a month of the year where Parsis don't eat red meat, preferably chicken also, but eat eggs and fish because those are vegetarian. Yeah. Never mind that. And what my grandmother would do was she would get uh, Sikhtani Singh, Moringa mm-hmm. basically, mm-hmm. and uh, she would peel them and uh, she would bring them down to about two and a half inch or three inch uh, sticks. Mm-hmm. And then she would take 
four or five of these and tie them with the same peel that she dripped off from the moringa and make these little bundles which she'd steam in uh, salt, water and a little haldi. She would add this as the stock to her dhansak and then just before serving, she would drop these bundles in intact into the dhansak and everybody would be given one bundle. So they wouldn't split apart yeah, and they wouldn't make an absolute mess and be stringy in the dal. And they were great fun to suck at. This is a great tip. I want to try this, huh? Moringa in my dhansak dal. But it's possible, you know. And it does and add so much flavor, you know. It's moringa at the end of the day. Yes, yes, very much so. I, I hope people are more open to experimenting and tweaking. And I hope all the cooks and chefs and home chefs and caterers and everyone who's, you know, doing their bit to promote our cuisine is a little bit open-minded as well. So, we're at the end of this episode. This has been fantastic. But before you go, I want to ask you what's in store for Kurush Dalal? What, what are you up to next? So Kurush Dalal has been reinventing himself through the uh, lockdown. I have been and, noticing. And I'm I've very had, impressed, huh? I must say. Thank you. And I've had a veil of a time uh, promoting the studying food workshop. And uh, I kind of think that that is a direction I want to take my life in. You enjoy teaching more than anything else. I enjoy teaching. I enjoy doing the research on food. I have met some amazing people. We've ended up creating an enormous community of people now of about three, four hundred of us who are all into food and who help each other out a lot. I mean, I never have to worry about recommendations of where to eat anywhere in (laughs) India and in a lot of places abroad. But that said, I've realized that in India, nobody studies food. You know, Roxanne, it's one of the three things you have to do to stay alive. And it's the only voluntary thing. Breathing and sleeping are involuntary. You have to do those. Eating is voluntary, but we do not teach food. We teach people in catering colleges how to cook. We teach them about ingredients. We teach them about recipes and we teach them about equipment and presentation. We don't teach them about the history of their food, the stories behind their food, the human costs of food, the food in politics, uh, media, religion, You know, so many factors, how food can be used as a weapon, as a tool, how food has brought us where we are, how we can study humanity through our food. So it's something that really has been in my mind for many years. It's something that's been coming out in a lot of my lives and the studying food workshops that we do now. We're just in the middle of our eighth one. Yeah. And exactly in the middle of it just now. (laughs) We're coming. And uh, yes, that's definitely a direction that I want to take. And, you know, there comes a time when you want to hang up your shoes and reinvent yourself. So honestly, the the pandemic has been good to me. Yes. And I'm so glad to hear that, honestly, for everyone who says it's been horrible. Every time I hear someone who says, you know, for whatever it's worth, it has been good to me or something has come out of this. I am so happy for that. So thank you so much, Kurush. This was fantastic. Fantastic. I love chatting with you. Honestly, we could have spoken about so much more, but it's a podcast and you have to sort of, you know, rein it in. And Kurush is full of stories and full of life. And if you want to know more about Parsi cuisine or actually anything related to food, the best resource is going to be his Instagram. Just find him on Instagram because he's always doing these fantastic live sessions and he records them and he saves them. So just stalk his profile a little bit. 
and you will get a wealth of knowledge about Indian food, diaspora, everything. I, I mean, just whatever you do, Kurish, is fantastic. I'm a huge fan and an ardent supporter. I tune in. In fact, you know, even now I listen to it as podcasts, like your old episodes, if I haven't caught it live. And it really did sustain me through a chunk of the lockdown. So thank you so much. And thank you for being here. I hope you had fun. I had an absolute veil of a time, Roxanne. Thank you for calling me. And anytime you need me, I will be present. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can tune in every week for a brand new episode where I talk to another expert and delve into a different aspect of Indian cuisine. You can listen to more episodes of the Beyond Butter Chicken podcast on Spotify, Apple Music or any of your favorite podcast platforms. And make sure to follow us at Mammoth Media Publishing and The Tiny Taster for more updates. Until next time.